Welcome to Orion Valley. Hello, film fans. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect movies with fellow film enthusiasts and discuss why we love the medium as much as we do. Today, the LA Sessions comes to a close when my former Los Angeles roommate, Scotty Kaufman, joins me to talk about the bowling and rug-centered cult classic comedy, The Big Lebowski. All right, Scotty Kaufman is on the show today for his first episode. He chose The Big Lebowski to close out the LA Sessions, uh, one of my roommates while we were out in LA originally doing this. I gotta say, this is quite the movie to end our mini series on. Scotty, why did you choose The Big Lebowski for this? Since you and I have gotten to know each other, I was always like a TV person, but you have opened me up to a lot of different movies. I never consider myself like a big movie watcher, but now I'm really interested in them. This was always a cult classic that I was missing out on. And, you know, uh, being in Los Angeles and being with you, I felt like I just had to see it and I wanted to talk to you about it like I do every movie. And it's good you say cult classic because, I mean, this in a lot of ways is the epitome of the cult classic. It's like this Fight Club and Rocky Horror Picture Show or mm-hmm. even like, you know, The Room. They garner such a significant amount of praise and fan following after their initial kind of uh, tank of uh, a release. <laughs> and, and this was your first time. This was your first time watching it. I, yeah, I watched it for the first time a week and a half ago and again this morning to get prepped to uh, talk to you. But yes, the, the it's the only one out of those four that I hadn't seen. And I have to say all four of them are on the same critical level. Absolutely. And yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. I want to ask first about what it was for you for your first time watching it. I'll, I'll just give my quick brief experience. I was a sophomore in high school. I think my brother had come home from college. Actually, I might've been a freshman or something like that. Uh, and he had come home first from school one weekend and was like, over the past three days, I've watched the big Lebowski five times. <laughs> and I was like, that's, that is insane. And he's like, we got to watch it. And I was like, well, I've never seen it. So, okay. I just knew a little bit about it, but not uh, an extensive amount. So, we sat down to watch it and that and luckily that night my grandparents happened to be over for dinner and my mom had seen it before and I remember we were watching it and my grandparents who are not very big into this kind of humor they're much more you know not as interested in profanity and <laughs> uh explicited <laughs> content so we're watching it and then they get to the Jackie Treehorn scene <laughs> when he goes to the mansion and it starts with this with the naked girl going slow motion on the trampoline. Yeah. And it's and we're all it's all quiet. It's all awkward. And my uh, my grandma turns to my grandpa and goes, uh, hey, we should probably get going. My grandpa just goes, hang on, I'm watching this. <laughs> <laughs> And they stayed for the rest of the movie. And my grandma was so uncomfortable. <laughs> my grandfather was definitely enjoying himself. It was oh, so great. That's so funny. And it's such a great, really great first viewing experience. And instantly I knew, I didn't realize how odd the movie is. Because this is a very obscure, yeah. weird movie. And I, I, again, I just knew about, I knew about John Goodman's character and obviously Jeff Bridges. But like, 
I didn't know about the goings on in the movie, its influences of Raymond Chandler and like this whole stoner aspect was very much lost on me years mm-hmm. ago. And and I think that's kind of one of the great things about this movie is how is the rewatch is the rewatch value that you can look at it so many different ways and pick up on certain things the more times you watch it. And you said you've now watched it twice. I want to know. Tell me about your first time watching it and how it was this morning on the second rewatch. <laughs> yeah. So before I had seen it the first time, from what I heard about it, it was that first of all that it was a cult classic I, i'd seen like the halloween uh costumes i i knew that it was like had this big following but that i i heard that it was a protagonist who didn't th- there was no like inciting incident besides that he lost his rug and he wanted to get his rug back yeah and after the after the first watch i thought that it was just a bunch of nonsense i i laughed at the <laughs> jokes i thought that it was really funny and i thought that the characters were fun but i was like what what the hell was that and having watched it the second time i mean the plot is still just like so secondary i think to uh, th- th- there's a lot of ins a lot of outs in the plot but uh i think that <laughs> it, it, it was like a lot of fun it is a like definitive movie just to put on for pure entertainment. And that's not to say that it's lacking in other areas because it is very creative and Mm -hmm. has a lot of things to offer, especially in the story and in the characters and what actually is going on. But, you know, that's kind of one of the things we'll talk about this when we get to critical breakdown. Uh, Mm -hmm. The plot it's it's very hard to follow, honestly. Like I have seen it three times, four times now, I think it was the last time I watched it was my fourth time. And it was, it's still like there are things where I'm just like, wait, so this, oh, then this, oh, okay, so it means, and then, oh, okay, I got it. Were you at first really looking at the story and the fact that it is kind of a confusing narrative and not as structured as other films? Was that kind of a demerit on your part or a demerit from your perspective at first, or were you actually okay with it and immersed in uh, the characters and everything else? You know, I think that if you had asked me, six months ago i probably would have said yes to that question but and we're tying this back to la immediately Mm -hmm. but having been there and being and being opened up to so many different kinds of narratives and structures i thought i wasn't as bothered by it i could just tell that it wasn't it, it wasn't something that i was supposed to be super in tune to like you might in in other movies yeah and that's not the purpose of the movie mm-hmm. which is kind of an interesting thing and i think that's one of the reasons why it didn't garner as much interest or revenue or praise as initially as it does now so i mean let me just throw throw a couple quick numbers on uh, up on here it's a movie that came out in 1998 premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. It grossed 28.7, or sorry, $46.7 million on a budget of $15 million. You know, made back back its budget, you know, still, not a lot of people understood this movie immediately. So, like, you know, critics thought it was a little little odd it like again the kind of hard to follow thing one review this is a good one from todd mccarthy and variety said one of the films um indisputable triumphs is its soundtrack which makes carter burwell's original score with classic pop tunes and some fabulous covers so like that's that is obviously an interesting thing to highlight but Mm -hmm. a lot of it, it it took time for this movie to to really garner that 
the fandom. Why, why do you think this took so long? And what do you think it was after repeat viewings? And like, what do you think it was about this movie that had that power to kind of live on and have a second life after its release with, you know, because I feel like so many generations, like our generation now is really big on this movie. It's a big film school movie. People mm-hmm. love this fucking movie, like so much in film school. How does the movie have that power? Well, I would like to hear your answer to this as well, but I think that if you had given it to critics, then they would say, like, what the hell is this? When I think that it has that theme of, like, taking it easy and, like, counterculture that I think does, is still around, is still a popular ideology. And so when people are seeing this and seeing how different it was back then and how much the dude dudism has continued on until now it's still just as relevant yeah i do like the counterculture element of it that wasn't uh my way of initially reading it but i I feel like it has to do greatly with the with the writing the coen brothers are very particular in their writing it's very timed out in the dialogue the jokes are very precise and the characters in this movie are just bonkers they're just so ridiculous None of them seem like I watched I saw a video recently that was saying like none of the film's characters seem as though they belong in the same movie. And there's like a whole mm-hmm. interesting analysis that like everyone in this movie knows that they're in a movie, just not this movie. So like everyone's a certain kind of archetype and like just so idiosyncratic and um vibrant in their in their personality that it's enticing to watch. And it's a movie about bowling. Bowling, to all our bowlers fans out there, keep doing what you're doing. Bowling is not an interesting sport to watch. I'm sorry. It's very, very boring to watch. But they make it exciting here because of the comedy, because of how just ridiculous everything that's happening, like everything, all of the goings on of the movie and the jokes, they all land and add to the, the story. And it is almost like... And I think a lot of it has to do with how accepting or a little bit more accepting drug culture is now. I mean, this movie is just one big stream of consciousness uh, that um, a 48-year-old or however old the dude is in this movie, Stoner, would have. And it makes sense. And I just feel like that enjoyment level, just put it on, like laugh your ass off. You don't have to necessarily really be as engaged to the story. You can just go along for the ride. And it makes it fun. Um, but on the opposite side of that, it is still fun to kind of analyze and see what else is actually going on in this movie. I love that you say that it's about bowling because like it is, I guess, kind of a sports movie, but it's also a mystery movie and it's also like a war movie to, to your point about the characters being in thinking that they're in different movies. Like it's that, that, that just speaks to how I guess absurdist it was like for it's, uh, for it's time. Let's talk about LA in this movie. I feel like this is a, a all-time LA movie. They utilize the location so well. And in just the fact that it's not about the big famous parts of LA. It's not about the tourist attractions. It's about just people who just lived there the whole their whole life and just being like, this is just the normal scenery. And even then it's like so weird the way the layout is. Like the main locations are we see them in a Ralph's. We see them in these like his close like cornered apartment, the bowling alley itself. Everything seems so much more run down. And then there's like the mansion and every, and the art studio. But all of the characters seem like people that you would run into in in L, in and around 
LA, like especially everything that happens with Julianne Moore's character and the artists and the nihilists and all of mm-hmm. that. I just feel like it just speaks levels. How is LA portrayed in this movie to you? What did you pick up on? Like, how is the setting really utilized in the telling of the story? You know, it's interesting because I think that it kind of does something exactly the opposite of what like La La Land did with it. And we, we could talk forever about that movie, but I thought that Los Angeles kind of was a backdrop for all of this stuff to happen in. And it talked a little bit about the different like class structures of Los Angeles. You have all these eccentric people who are the way that they are because of this crazy place that they live in. But still they're facing like the conflicts that the, the dude is on the bottom. The dude is, you know, he, he is as relaxed as he is because of the culture, but he is still poor. He has to pay rent. And there are people like uh, Jackie Treehorn who are on the top and having these, you know, extravagant parties. And it shows the, it shows a problem there using Los Angeles, I think. Uh, and also like the class thing, which is interesting because, you can clearly see it, but it's not explicitly talked about as a problem. Mm-hmm. It's clearly like, I always felt that it was here are the very clear divided difference of these groups of people, but not that this is the problem of at the forefront of the movie. It's just something that you see. And it's very evident in LA. If you know, we've been there, it's abundantly clear. And just also that the, the personalities of these characters, everyone is, working on their own merits. Everyone is thinking inside of their own head and caring more about themselves than really anyone else. There are only times when the dude, you know, cares about what's her name, bunny when she has been kidnapped. He's really the only one of those times who is thinking about other people. But for the most part, everyone is thinking about their own needs and wants in the story. And I feel like that's a very LA thing. Everyone is constantly in their own head and worry about themselves as opposed to thinking of everyone else around them. And that's not to say that makes these characters abruptly just horrible people because they're not, they're just fucking crazy. And they just got that. um, They got that part right, which I, I I really like to see. And also that like, just the, again, it's just a city of just like, here it is. This is what it is. And I love that first shot of, you know, the tumbleweed going through the, uh, through the desert and then up, and then you see the cityscape the yeah. of all the lights. Yeah. <laughs> Sam Elliott. And yeah. I, I, yeah. And what I do really like about that is it kind of gives you this idea of a place or a character that seems to be or has this aura of greatness around it. And you expect this otherworldly place. And then it's just like, oh, here it is. This is actually, you know, what it is. It's just a dude in a bathrobe walking around a Ralph's. You know, you expect <laughs> something so much greater and it's actually just it's just a it's just a place and i think doing that by downplaying the kind of greatness and uh fantastical elements of la makes this movie more interesting they really do use it as like a funny contrast i i, I like that point that you made because as much as like i've grow i grew up in philadelphia which people tell me is like such this hard town but it's all that i know you know what i mean and as much as people need to look out for themselves here, people need to do that there too. It's it's the weather is warmer, so it uh, Los Angeles has that stigma of being like this easy place. But everyone, it's so competitive. So 
I like that everyone in the movie is kind of trying to worry about themselves. And as soon as the dude cares about something else, that's what causes him problems. With that, let's get into the critical breakdown. All right, we got a lot to talk about. Okay. Uh, let's let's start with what we like. I mean, I we could talk about these characters for the next hour and a half. I mean, they are just like top-notch Coen Brothers uh, characters, and the I think their writing is really the strong suit of this movie. And uh, the dude and Walter is just a pairing, like a match made in screenwriting heaven, and just portrayed by. <laughs> John Goodman and Jeff Bridges who have just incredible chemistry together. They really bring those characters like to life and you can't see anyone else in those roles. They just are <laughs> perfect in my mind. <laughs> Completely bypassing the fact that those two should never be friends. They just tell you that they're friends yeah. and then you see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally like no, like I said, no one in this movie seems like they would ever be friends or belong <laughs> in the same movie with one another. One of them is a stoner bowler. The other one is a um, Vietnam war veteran and just an absolute madman. And the other one, Donnie is just the most oblivious character, <laughs> just kind of whatever guy who just enjoys bowling. And all three of them just that, that is just a, uh, an iconic comedy trio right there. Yeah. I, I want to know, I'm curious, did you, do you know a lot about like the Coen brothers filmography or have you seen any of the other, their other films before this one? I have seen a couple. I think that my favorite is inside Lone Davis, but I've, I, I've seen a couple of them and I like from what I have seen inside Lewin Davis is fantastic. They're, they're such interesting filmmakers to me. I've always really loved their work. And the fact that like every single one of their movies is, is kind of, uh, lensed in this very bizarre way of storytelling the timing of everything and just the way that the characters interact is so awkward and subtle that it's actually really funny and they just make i mean they make movies about things that they find interesting so here they're talking about bowling inside Lou and davis it's about just some whatever folk artists mm -hmm. um and i don't know like their jokes are like it's so timed out that it doesn't like it's not realistic like no one in this movie would ever talk like this but it does feel very natural to these actors and like the, i love how the dialogue there's a lot of interruptions and that that's kind of gets into one of the styles of this movie that we can talk about the directing of it is very much like a stoner you know fever dream how it just goes from yeah. one thing to the next you know one in dialogue one thought bypasses the other and someone else interrupts that and moves on to the next point or even Donnie who can't keep up with literally anything and doesn't understand what's going on at all. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. A lot of what his like a lot of his comedy with Walter and uh, the dude comes from him just interrupting and asking what's going on. And then, but you're right. It is a lot of just like, forget about that for a second. Listen to this. And there's a lot of great visual comedy in the movie too. I really love, I mean, the opening scene is iconic when he goes to the Ralph's pays for milk with, <laughs> for, with a <laughs> with 67 <the> check. <laughs> cent check. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then goes home and gets the shit kicked out of him by two guys. It's like, <laughs> I love when, yeah, he's, he's getting his head dunked into the toilet and they're looking for the big Lebowski and, they're like, does this, he's like, does this place look like I'm fucking married, man? Do you see a ring on here? The toilet seat's up, man. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> takes the golf ball out and he's like, what is this? Or takes the bowling ball out and he's like, obviously you're not a golfer. Like, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. so great. <laughs> I, I mean, we're, we're just getting into it now, but the, the fact that it's it's just so quotable is is what makes the comedy amazing. He He's getting his head dunked in the toilet and they're like, where's the money? And he says, it's in there somewhere, man. <laughs> Give me one more chance. <laughs> Yeah, oh. and that's that's another thing is yeah, you said it's one of the most quotable movies of all time. Like every scene has at least two quotes that are recognizable and it's it's about it's anything. It's like sarcasm, it's physical comedy, it's the fact that the dude has no idea what he's doing. It's very absurd. It's just like it's so strange and because the lines are so specific to the characters. I mean, I think every line that John Goodman says in this movie is delivered perfectly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Despite no matter what kind of sense he's making, he will ask if he's wrong every time knowing full well that he is right. Even though he's yeah. not. <laughs> yeah. He asks twice both times interrupting and he's clearly wrong. Yeah. Every single time because he's a fucking lunatic. Um, so after the guys leave, and there's that there's the slow motion scene with the man and me and it's all of the slow motion shots of people bowling and the pins being knocked down and the one guy doing the dance. Like, <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that scene because, I mean, it's funny because it's like, OK, you're going to take this movie about you're going to get invested in this movie that's about bowling and we're going to make it, you know, kind of filmed in an interesting way that's comical. But it's also giving you a sense of like the people in the movie. You know, everyone who's bowling in that opening sequence are all people who look like they're in their um, late 40s and 50s and have been bowling forever. And that's like their favorite thing to do. It's this <laughs> yeah. whole subculture. I remember I was listening to um, someone talk about this movie once and they were saying how this is a good representation of like the baby boomer generation. And it's just like people who are at this point in their life where their life is just kind of going on and it, everything has become normal and bowling is kind of their, I don't want to say escape, but it's like their main driving thing. And that's kind of one big thing about this movie that I really love is that it's a, almost a search for importance with the whole story and the mystery that the dude gets himself wrapped up into. Yeah, I, I like that you put it that way. I feel like I'm saying that a lot, but I like that you put it that way because <laughs> bowling in all of those people in that scene, everyone, especially like Smokey, who is a pacifist and Walter, like, like polar opposites. Everyone cares about the bowling score. Mm -hmm. Everyone, everyone is at least like when they, they just crashed a car. They, they completely screwed up throwing the bag out the window. They say, fuck it, let's go bowling, because that that is the thing that they enjoy doing. And a lot of what the, you know, the dude's ideology is, is that like, that's what he finds fun. So that's what's important. That's kind of like, as long as he's enjoying his life, the dude abides, then that's what's important. And he finds bowling fun. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that is the main driving thing in this movie is that, you know, he just, he wants his rug back so he can get back and go bowling and like, doesn't want any of what Mr. Lebowski tells him to do to get in the way of the tournament. That's kind of in the backdrop of, of this story. And well, the, the rug also tied the room together. It did tie the room together. <laughs> did it not? <laughs> But I mean, it's such also that opening scene is such a great introduction to Walter's character because it's like he's on the dude's side, but he's also not. And he's just basically sprouting any 
form of information that he feels makes sense is important, but is not at all relevant to the, mm-hmm. to what is actually going on. So he's like, we're talking about unchecked aggression here, you know, <laughs> like, and, then, and like, you know, he's like, I'm talking about drawing a line in the sand, dude. You know, he's like, also dude, Chinaman is not the preferred nomenclature. Asian American, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, of course, of course he would be the type of guy who's like, you know, always talks about how he went to Nam and, is being sort of PC about the, <laughs> what people are calling other people. It's so ridiculous. And he's just, it, it, there's no genuineness in this movie at all, but I, I love it because everyone, like I said, everyone is fighting for themselves <laughs> in this movie, no matter what it is. No, that character is so bizarre. And, and any choice that they were, they're like, all right, we're going to pick someone who is a veteran, but He's still stuck in Vietnam. He's still thinking in that way. He was divorced four years ago, but he's still taking care of his wife's dog. He is, I guess, a little bit PC. And he also <laughs> observes Chavez, <laughs> so he can't bowl on Saturdays. <laughs> Show her Chavez! <laughs> he, <laughs> the whole Chavez thing, it's supposed to be his, his day of rest because he was not Jewish originally. He got... <laughs> He converted to Judaism when he married his wife, who who he then divorced, but he still observes it and will absolutely scream at anyone who <laughs> is <laughs> <laughs> who who gets in the way of that it's just so funny i told that crowd a fucking thousand times i don't roll on shabbos like <laughs> <laughs> and that even becomes a definitive part of the story later when dude <laughs> has to yeah be picked up by walter which is just so great um and Steve Buscemi as Donnie is just one of the uh, really great side character performances. I mean, he <laughs> yeah. is just he he doesn't do a lot, but what he does is great. He does what he needs to do perfectly because he is just this random rinky dink guy who he really just enjoys bowling and being with his friends and he actually cares about them. But they like don't give a shit about him at all. <laughs> and they're just like he's trying to keep up and pay attention. Like when <laughs> my favorite is when he's like in the first scene is like. You know, the other Jeff Larry Lebowski, the millionaire. It's like, yeah, that's fucking interesting, man. And then Donnie's like, Lebowski, that's your name, dude. That's your name, dude. <laughs> <laughs> like, just so... Or when they're talking about, like, In-N-Out in the, uh, in, in the theater. <laughs> by the like, down by the In-N-Out burger. No, it's over by the other In-N-Out burger. They got good burgers there, Walter. Shut the fuck up, Donnie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, uh, Steve Buscemi, I mean, like, he, he always does kind of play, like, in, in comedies, I should say, he always does kind of play, like, one of the sidekick that just kind of has, like, the, the one-note joke, but he was re- really young in this movie, I was not expect, I didn't know he was in it, looking good with the, with the nice quafted hair, of course. Oh, yeah, but, um, middle part? Oh, Of course, <laughs> but, yeah, he's, like, the one character that they needed to just be, he has no character outside of the fact that he's just not really listening. He's just kind of, he, he wants to be included, but he doesn't really know what's going on. And thank God we have someone like that because Walter and the dude are already just so much themselves. And, and I mean, we can recount every single scene in this movie and uh, just how fucking bonkers it is and just how funny because literally there isn't a scene that drags it, you know, like just every scene like brings something new. Like the comedy is constantly changing. It's situational. It's in dialogue. It's physical. Like they use great use of slow-mo in this movie, particularly in in the opening 
with them dancing. There's the dream yeah. sequence with gutter oh, balls. Yeah. There's the Jackie Treehorn scene where they're jumping like up. And that's kind of the other thing where LA plays into this movie is that there always seems to be this darker secret, weird underbelly of LA of these people who are just billionaires for no reason or no clear reason. And they seem as though they're almost like leader like or deitized because of their success. But we just like it adds a whole other weird atmosphere around the movie, especially with Jackie Treehorn in that whole part of the story. There, there is a commentary that they're definitely going for there and um, tying it back to like the comedic timing. I'm not really usually a fan of physical comedy. Like I feel like I've kind of grown out of that. And yet I think one of the funniest parts of this movie is when <laughs> the police chief is like, <laughs> is monologuing to him and he's like, sorry, man, I wasn't listening. And he whips the coffee, cu- <laughs> the coffee mug at him. I thought that was, I, I, I burst out laughing both times and it's, th- th- that's a whole different commentary on, you know, uh, you're talking about the people at the top and people at the bottom and the forces keeping those two things separate. A, a little part about the police there, but that's a whole different can of worms. And I mean, the police is the he That guy said he is good fans or friends of Jackie Treehorn. So it's clear that there's a very kind of a corrupt relationship uh, there in law enforcement. Before we talk any, any further, let's talk about like actually what happens within the story just to try and track it. We can, we, we can do the mental gymnastics if you want to. <laughs> I, I feel like we should. I mean, it's kind right. of, it's worth it to talk about, you know, what we like and what we don't like. So, I mean, it starts off, the dude is mistaken for this bigger millionaire whose last name is also Lebowski. Right. And, the dude just want his rug gets peed on, so he just wants his rug back. He goes to meet the Big Lebowski and his um. He got mistaken because the Big Lebowski's wife ran out of money. She owes someone money, and they wanted to collect the money from him. I think she owed Jackie Treehorn the money. That's where Jackie Treehorn comes in, and she gets kidnapped after he visits and takes the other rug. And also, I, I before we go on further, further, I have to mention how brilliant philip seymour hoffman is in this movie <laughs> as Brant, yeah. the secretary i mean i think that philip seymour hoffman is one of the best actors to have ever lived especially in the past uh of this century and like of the 90s and the 80s he every role that he was in he just gave a hundred percent and i i i was so sad when i heard that he passed away but he gave so many dynamic performances and like he had so much range he was not afraid to be menacing and hardcore and then like such a soft human being in another movie yeah he gives some of the best comedic parts of just how awkward he is and how <laughs> like especially when he when the dude goes to talk to tara to, reed who's bunny and it's like yeah i'll suck <laughs> yeah i'll suck your cock for 50 bucks and he's just like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah lovely woman lovely woman we're very proud of her <laughs> Yeah, I, I I had just for my other class, I just watched him in uh, Moneyball and like like talk about the the difference between those two roles. Oh I, yeah, I I agree. He was so funny. So Bunny then gets kidnapped and the the dude is asked to deliver the money, and then that obviously goes horribly wrong because Walter gives him the dirty <laughs> undies. For some reason, he brings Walter. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why he brought Walter. That was because, I mean, the dude has, he's using his own car. I guess he had to pick up Walter or something. I think think he was just picking him up to to do him a favor. And (laughs) they they explicitly said, come alone. Walter screws up the whole thing. 
uh, tries to throw a mm-hmm. ringer, which is like a, a fake uh, briefcase out of the car and <laughs> fa- falls out. His gun that he brought in a bag goes off and and pops uh, the tire. And yeah, it, it, it <laughs> just like, goes I wasn't packing, wrong. man. Like, <laughs> yeah. And the Uzi just like starts spinning with bullets. I laughed so hard. I forgot about that part when I rewatched it. <laughs> it's so great. A- after that, they, they, they say, fuck it, we're going to go bowl. But he has the million dollars in the suitcase, supposedly, in the back of his trunk, and his car gets stolen as they're bowling. But then Maude Lebowski gets involved, Julianne Moore, who's also fantastic in this movie. But she is just so, she is so over the top and so crazy in this movie that it, I love it that it's added to, she's just this avant-garde vagina artist and that's just her thing and we find out that (laughs) that bunny was involved in pornography and the movie was called log jamming (laughs) yeah (laughs) which of course has has a a funny um inside joke between you and i with the whole key and peel sketch but yeah yeah absolutely she, she is only she is involved because the dude wanting to replace his rug took one of the big Lebowski's rugs, which has sentimental value to Maud, who is uh, mm-hmm. Maud is the big Lebowski's uh, daughter. If he gets that rug back, he'll get a percentage of of the million dollars that they offered and then becomes this whole big thing about, oh, maybe Bunny kidnapped herself. But actually what happened is the big Lebowski hired the nihilist to kidnap her and they she did he didn't want her back it is like this is where it gets tangled man this is oh yeah (laughs) there's that the third group the nihilists which flee from the red eye chili peppers is a part of is Mm -hmm. is and peter stormare yeah they just kind of heard that bunny was gone and wanted to uh bully the dude out of money but he doesn't have the money he doesn't have the uh the money that the big Lebowski supposedly had. Right. Oh yeah. She wasn't even actually kidnapped. She just went away for the, <laughs> yep. for the no, weekend. She, the, the, and the, the mystery, like Walter said in the beginning, like, like the dude said in the beginning, she kidnapped herself. She was just got restless mm. and, and left for a while. And so she didn't, and then the big Lebowski didn't even want her back. And then at the end, they, the nihilists just come back and then trash <laughs> the car and kill Donnie. The it's, there is so I don't know how someone can think of this story because like what's great about this movie. So it's based a lot on the writings of uh, famed American novelist Raymond Chandler, um, who wrote the novel The Big Sleep, which is a very mm-hmm. popular um, detective story, which got made into a, a movie for noir and which I have read. And the interesting thing about it is, again, it's just a stream of consciousness. It isn't it's very modernist in that way and that it isn't it doesn't have the familiar structure. It doesn't have the clear setup and payoff and first act inciting incident and the second act trials and and all of that. Nope, it just kind that. of goes where it's going to go. And I mean, the Coen brothers have even said that this movie is much more a collection of scenes for jokes rather than one coherent full-on story it really is just like what's going to happen in this scene to get to the next scene that goes back to what we were saying where it's just like forget about that here's this thing oh remember that remember Mm -hmm. that that's coming back up like it's the again the plot and something that like i in in my major i'm always studying like uh, story structure and all that stuff and you just got to throw that out the window for for this kind of movie and i feel like that's kind of one of the maybe one of the demerits on on the movie on my part just because i'm one who and i know that the that is the point of this movie is to not the just just to be like the story is secondary 
in all of this. And I can still enjoy the characters and get the jokes, but I am still, I've, I am just trained at this point to look for the story beats to keep up. Yeah. So when there is something where I'm like, oh, wait, what does this mean? I do have to kind of like pause and or rewind and like just make sure I have it right. And this movie is kind of a uh, one of the bigger examples of that, even though I've seen it you know, several times, it's just so, it's confusing in that way. It's still enjoyable, but it is a little, like, it, it, it's, it, it, it nails the confusion of that as it's going for, I guess. So it's a plus and a not so plus, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree with that because the fact that we can't even describe what happens in the movie is kind of like, okay, well then, d- did they do a good job of telling us a story? Well, I don't know. They, they accomplished their goal of making this funny movie that's just, it's its own thing entirely so i guess they i guess they did it but i see what you're saying and i mean i think what i mean just what makes it great is that every like 20 minutes or so a new side character pops up brant shows up and is really great maud lebowski shows up later and she's fantastic david thulis shows up as the one guy in maud's apartment with the with the pencil mustache <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's fucking ridiculous <laughs> i love that the dude in that scene is just like fuck is this guy like it's so like just so weirded out by him you never really get an answer he's just there to do his silly little laugh and like mm-hmm. you know and then call and then call Maud when she's right right over there <laughs> yeah and then we see sam elliott show up which is mm. an always a delight to see as this <laughs> <laughs> the narrator slash cowboy who is just like kind of off his rocker and the fact that he will have something to say and then just kind of abandons it and loses his train of thought. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that way I kind of think he may be the first stoner cowboy that I've seen. Like, yeah, that is kind of like, I feel like that's kind of part of it. I don't know if he's necessarily is a stoner, but he has that mentality. And I do love when he says to the dude, he's like, do you have to use so many cuss words? Like, <laughs> Way. Yeah, I mean, that that's just uh, just one in a million ways that they just kind of uh, break from the norms by giving you a narrator who is terrible at narrating, who is who is acting like he's narrating a Western. But it's definitely not uh, that that is the only way that the movie is a Western. It's the most iconic or one of the most iconic characters in the movie is definitely John Turturro's character is Jesus. <laughs> J- Jesus, the the eccentric bowler slash child molester. Yeah, that. <laughs> That part, it's hard because, like, because, like, I mean, people really love and kind of, uh, I don't want to say attach themselves, but can, like, reference that character as one of the, the greats. I mean, I literally just did it, um, but he is, like, a terrible, very gross human being um, that just has so many, I mean, he has two scenes, and they're both, like, I, the hardest I laughed when I first watched, when I first watched the movie, the hardest I ever laughed is when Walter and them are talking, and then it cuts over to Jesus, and he's just cleaning his ball, like, <laughs> yeah. really, really yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I cut you off. What were you going to say about the about the character oh there's really just not i I was gonna say that he is i i've heard about this character before and yet he does absolutely nothing for the story besides i guess he's like the antagonist of the bowling uh storyline but like he Mm -hmm. (laughs) he's funny and i don't really have anything else to say about him he's just weird he doesn't show up again to actually like it's just two conversations that he has between the dude and walter like he doesn't really affect the overall story and mystery behind the movie and 
I, I gotta say, I love the way I love the way that they end the movie too. So Donnie gets shot, or is no, he does, he's having he's having a heart attack, and then they put his ashes in a Ralph's container and just go and like shake them off and just <laughs> yeah, the- blows all in the dude's face. <laughs> yep. And it ends in the bowling alley with Sam Elliott narrating. And I guess I I really didn't realize the fact when I was a kid of in the end, nothing really was accomplished. No character really had a big arc. No one really was altered by the conflict or anything like that. It just kind of ends. And the dude just kind of like the dude abides. He just kind of keeps on going the way that he wanted to go. And I, I, I honestly, I kind of like that because it fits in with the overall structure of the movie and that the story itself is just uh, just one big stream of events that don't necessarily have the biggest connection with one another. There is a through line, but it's not important. Like, what do you think of the ending? First off, at the beginning of the movie, the dude is not at all insecure about the way that he's living in that he can't pay rent that he's just kind of like doesn't care about much he he's very content with his life but after everything is said and done he had like this big contention with the big lebowski about how the bums lost the war and and he was proven right because the big lebowski was full of it he didn't actually have the money that he liked to act like he had so i think that the despite losing his car and losing one of his bowling buddies, he, the dude was just reaffirmed that his way of life was the right way of life. The fact that like, I like everything that happens in the movie, like when he gets his car stolen and everything that seems like that is working against him, he's just so kind of ambivalent to it, like or oblivious to it. He's just kind of like, uh, yeah, so my car got stolen and like reports it. And then even when like the big Lebowski tell get gets the ransom note, he's just like, do you mind if I like roll up a J in here <laughs> and just like, you know, start smoke. Like everything that happens is, is almost just so it's, it's whatever at that point. And he, then the fact that he cares in the moment, he, he expresses that he's not happy about what's going on. But then in the next scene, it's kind of like, well, you know, he gets over it. Yeah, he definitely gets over it really quick. Before we get into analyze, I do have to talk about the great scene where the dude finds the homework in the car. And so they go to, <laughs> yeah. uh, what's, what's his fucking name? D- Jeffrey Sellers or something like that. <laughs> he like just, you know, tries to get him out. He's, Walter's just like, all right, time for plan B. <laughs> smashes the shit out of this car is like this is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass and just (laughs) destroying the car that's not larry's larry doesn't say a word through the entire scene and the entire movie i don't think (laughs) yeah the the dude's just trying to find the briefcase because his because his car got stolen and like it just leads here to it just again it just leads to nothing and they end up back at the bowling alley regardless it's that is like an all-time comedy scene. Immediately after that is a scene. I don't think anyone says anything, but it's them driving back in the dude's car, eating in and out without a windshield because the because the uh, neighbor came out and destroyed the dude's car. <laughs> Meanwhile, they're they're talking to this kid while his dad is over in the other side of the room on like a giant like full body like iron lung. <laughs> <laughs> and because a good his, day to you, sir. His dad's, his dad's a best-selling author, or something that uh, that Walter is for some reason a big fan of. And yeah, yeah, yeah no, that that's really great. S- some random ass like TV show that was on 
Oh, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah, it's not even a real TV show. I think they just made it up. But uh, with that, let's go to analyze this. This is a great movie to analyze because it's kind of one of the uh, prime examples of how many interpretations you can get out of a movie. And I think that's the case with a lot of Coen Brothers movies. There's so many different ways to approach them, and there's a lot of things you can take out of them. Of directors out there, I feel like they're the ones that a lot of their movies take on a whole other life in interpretation and analysis because of that. There are some crazy interpretations about this movie. There are a lot of crazy interpretations about like Barton Fink. People think Barton Fink is like about the rise of fascism, which is the movie they made um, uh, before this. And the same goes here. I mean, the one thing I said earlier is that uh, a lot of people think that every character in this movie knows that they're in a movie or in a different movie, um, except Donnie. But like everyone else in the movie is like, I'm a certain kind of architect or um, uh, archetype, like uh, like the big Lebowski is the, the big millionaire. And then Walter is the paranoid war veteran. And the dude is a, sto- a bowling stoner. And Maude Lebowski is, uh, is an avant-garde artist. And none of them seem like they would work together. There's a lot of people that think that Donnie doesn't exist or was like a figment of Walter's imagination, which I don't think has a whole lot of merit. It, that doesn't really make sense. I, I did see that. And it, the idea was kind of that it was based in that they were were like a three-person bowling team while while all the other bowling teams are all two people and yeah i I don't know if i completely subscribe to that but it's it's a cool theory give me some thoughts and some interpretations that you have this movie what was your initial reading or what have you picked up since the second reading like what is your interpretation of everything here well i think that more more so than most movies it has a bunch of different angles that you can look at it like you said that's something that the coen brothers like to do uh, the first time that I watched it, like I said uh, earlier, I thought it was a lot about counterculture. Uh, they it, It's taking place during the Gulf War. It was, again, after Vietnam. Walter is still experiencing the pressure of Vietnam, I guess. And my first takeaway is that it was a lot about like the way that people solve problems. Because everyone who comes to the dude with... Uh, trying to get money, trying to get power. It's all, they all come out and very aggressively, like breaking into his apartment, uh, throwing, <laughs> throwing a weasel in his bathtub. <laughs> we didn't talk about that, but, uh, people come at him with very aggressively, like, and that's not the way that he solves problems. He's more laid back. And it's a lot about the difference in those two, uh, ideologies, which is something that was, very uh, controversial at the time of the Gulf War when things were at such a high pressure in American society. That's a good point. I like that. I was kind of thinking maybe a little bit more simplistic on that same route and that just in a broad sense, how life and your problems and, you know, whatever conflict you're (laughs) involved in seems like it'll just kind of pass by and you'll end up in some form of normalcy again. I mean, this whole movie is a critique on that um, that generation, like the baby boomer generation and how laziness kind of took over in America. And I mean, we can talk about the implications that this movie is about uh, is like a critique on American foreign policy with the Iraq war as a response to that. Mm. And I feel like that that theory actually has a lot more validity to it. I agree with that. I think that <laughs> the in, in the, the montage, the the uh, 
starkly political figure who hands them who hands him his bowling shoes in the uh, gutter balls <laughs> sequence. That was the, yeah. the, the, that part made it very m- much more explicit than uh, I, I had realized before. But I, I do think it's interesting. So like if it's about, you know, handling a foreign policy, that kind of makes this whole idea of the story being very muddy and complicated and everything returning to normal in the end, a little bit more vibrant in that interpretation in that no matter how, like, I mean, the dude is kind of the messenger, like the everyday kind of guy who gets involved in this conflict and the big Lebowski doesn't really know what he's doing because Bunny wasn't even kidnapped at all. And it was this whole kind of, that's a whole other critique on like corruption and political power. Yeah. So like the fact that they get involved in this conflict and they end up losing their friend because of it. I mean, it's because of a heart attack, but like still that idea and none of it really mattered in the end and everything just ended up going back to normal, but there was so much chaos that was created because of this conflict. And you know, the fact that the dude's car gets destroyed and someone's toe gets cut off and the nihilists end up getting uh, the shit kicked out of them. It's interesting that like, because of this whole conflict and you know, the effects of it, we are allowed like the, um, the everyday American is still going to be able to go back to their everyday lives and not really feel the necessary repercussions of it, which I thought was, which I think is kind of interesting. And I didn't really think about too much until this uh, last viewing of it. There were a couple other readings that I had, that did not occur to me, but that I saw from people online. Were there any other ones that you had, like, your different viewings of it? I've always thought that, like, and I mean, this. let's talk about, like, what I think, like, the takeaway of the, or the message of the movie is. My main message of it is a little bit more simple. It's just that the, that this story is just about, like, finding some level of perceived importance in life and trying to be an active, you know, role player in your existence. Um, but, you know, there is a, everyone in this movie is at their, the middle age where it almost seems like everything blends together and becomes this kind of just wanderance of an existence that looking for any kind of importance in an event or in a conflict or anything like that is desirable. And you know, everyone is looking for that. Some, like Especially, you know, the dude is trying to do the right thing. But Walter is actively trying to be a part of a story that he has no involvement in. And I feel like, I mean, we just talked about this in an earlier episode on Under the Silver Lake, which is all about, you know, finding that level of importance. But that's through like media and all that. But this is through various human interactions. And that's why I think the characters are so vibrant and they pop because, you know, the dude is just so used to seeing these three guys and bowling his entire life, and then he gets to meet an avant-garde artist, a millionaire, and a, and a porno director. Like, everyone just seems weird from that lens. And, I mean, he just wants his rug back, but he finds, you know, other layers to it and gets involved in this whole other level of being an important player in the story. So I've always thought of that as, like, this, of the takeaway. What is the message that you get from it like what is your takeaway i think similarly my takeaway was that the dude should do what he believes in and in the same way that you're saying like you have to have your own agency you have to be active in your life the dude just wants to be bowling and all this stuff gets in the way of it but he does find his way through all of the bullshit to get back to what he wants to do and once he does despite the fact that he lost his car and he lost his friend, he's enjoying his life, which is what is, uh, which is what's important. Totally agree. That's a great, great takeaway. 
let's, uh, let's finish it off and move on to the human connection. This one is a, is a little bit more big picture, this category, um, the final category of our episode. Um, I think we should look at this movie just as where it is its place, where it has its place in pop culture. There's a lot to be said for this, I feel like. What do you think this movie says about us as a people, as moviegoers? Like, clearly, you know, we talked about the cult status of this movie, why we enjoy it. But where does this movie rest in pop culture? What can we learn from this movie about ourselves as moviegoers? I think that this movie, both in teaching, in the theme that we were just talking about, and in how bizarrely structured it is, I think that this movie opens the door to what a comedy can be. It, it doesn't need to have that specific three-act structure. It doesn't need to... Um, look like every other movie that you've seen just for it to be funny, for it to be enjoyable. This movie, uh, what it does for me as a moviegoer is it opens doors to what, what a film can look like and what I can enjoy outside of what I've been taught in school or what I've been told that I should like by uh, popular media. It's a great testament to a movie where it took a while for, for it to get the audience it deserved. But I feel like what really stands out is just, again, our love of ridiculous humor. There are so many people who love this movie just because of the, how how idiosyncratic everybody is and just so oddball. It brings people together in that because like there's so much, there's a whole spectrum of comedy squished into this movie. And there's like something for all kinds of comedy fans in there, whether, again, that's dialogue or physical or situational. It's all here. And it's all represented very explicitly. Mm -hmm. And very well, it's very well done. And so I feel like, you know, on top of it being like, again, a comment about like, you know, being able to revisit movies and letting them live on through another generation um, is good for them. This movie is just a, a shining example of comedy and how you can really make any situation, any story funny with the right comedic angle. This is not a typical comedy. It's one of the more original comedies, but it's 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 not one of the more... Um, recognizable styles of comedy. It's not like an Apatow movie or it's not like, you know, Airplane or something. It's very much within its own realm of humor. And again, that spectrum of all the different kinds of jokes that go into it, um, I feel like just shows a lot about what what makes us laugh. Breaking the wall here, we were talking a little bit about the way that we're talking about this. We're talking over Discord, you know, uh, in a time like we are experiencing right now, who who doesn't want to laugh? Exactly, yeah. Let's finish it out and, you know, let's sum it all up, the answer the burning question of why we do this podcast and what we're here for. Give me a quick one reason why you love this movie as a new viewer and... But how does it add to your love of film? I mean, like you said, you're a little bit more new to analyzing and um, taking in like different kinds of movies. So how does this add to the, your love of the medium? I loved this movie because beside the fact that I am a comedy fan, beside the fact that I love to make jokes and that I love to laugh at other people's jokes, this movie was making me laugh in ways that I was not expecting. It, Like you said, it brought in elements of of repetition comedy it brought in physical comedy it, it, it just kind of threw all of these things together and in a plot that doesn't really have to make sense in which goes against everything that i've been taught in film school i was laughing and i was enjoying it regardless which just i think like i said it, it opens a door for me to explore different 
things that I normally wouldn't watch because I may enjoy them just in the same way. I love this movie for a couple reasons. One, just blatantly, I love how creative it is. I love the characters. I love that it takes big risks. But it is, it's it's dripping with creativity. And again, the fact that the story can just be thrown right out the window does show that you have a good movie, even though it's just it's just my brand that I want to try and uh, follow it. I agree with everything you said about comedy and you know that we need that's what we need right now in this time of like of like a good laugh and there are so many great laughs in this movie but just what really stands out to me is like again i mentioned how much i love the coen brothers but this movie shows that the risks that artists can take going outside of necessary of their normal genre and storytelling to give you something that they obviously were very interested in and took a lot of risks to make and they took that leap to just, and it shows that um, it's just a shining example of how versatile the the um, the Coen brothers are, and that they are capable of really telling a story in so many different genres. And they're entertaining, they're funny, they're bizarre, but they're also very engaging. And I love that the, you can watch this and No Country for Old Men and Inside Lewin Davis, and they're all made by the same two people, and they're just so vastly different. This is a top tier Coen brothers movie, and. And a, just a top-tier comedy in general. I feel so honored that you had me on to talk about it because it is a cult classic and a cult that I was not necessarily <laughs> a part of before, you know, uh, <laughs> before two weeks ago. Mm. But now I am or an ordained Dudist. I have gone through the website. It took about five minutes. Um <laughs> And I, I'm honored that you had me on for the last episode of the LA Sessions. I didn't realize that it was the last episode, but I, I just love hearing you talk about movies. It warms my heart about uh, oh, man. because because it's so clear that this is your passion, and I, I would love to talk about any movie that you see or that I see <laughs> ever in our entire lives. <laughs> of course, man. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um. What a great way to end the LA Sessions. Thank you so much, Scotty. Oh, thank you, Josh. Thanks for having me. This is the perfect medium because no one has to see my unkempt, raggedy hair or facial hair. Like, this this is great. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. Thanks, buddy. (laughs) Thank you. That does it for this episode of Frankly, I Love Movies. Thanks so much to Scotty for ending the LA sessions with us for our inaugural entry into this genre series format. The LA Sessions was a way for us to study how the location or setting of a film affected the overall story. Now, the phrase, the location as a character, is thrown around quite often in film analysis, a phrase I have come to despise despite my using it on the show before. It seems that this phrase is intended to highlight the lay of the land and how the camera captures the characters in a space with specific architecture and set pieces. I mean, if that's the case, then any film location is a character. However, in diving deep into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Under the Silver Lake, Blade Runner, Gone in 60 Seconds, and The Big Lebowski, we discovered that LA does something else entirely. It's more than just a treasure trove of famous landmarks and a vast landscape as seen in Gone in 60 Seconds. More than that, it entices us with the prospect of fame and glamour in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, while also taking away our hope in the grime-filled underground of Blade Runner. In Under the Silver Lake, it creates an aura of mystery and has us looking for a sense of importance, as done similarly in The Big Lebowski. Though all of these films are quite different in content, the choice of setting them in LA creates an otherworldly tone that sets them apart in cinema. There truly is no place like LA. Before we go, we just wanted to give you a quick insight onto what our next genre-centered series is going to be. We decided to go 
bigger than ever with this next series. Some and would say broader than ever. Some would say broader than ever, yes, for sure. Um, we decided to focus on movie musicals, specifically ones that are adaptations of famous Broadway musicals that started on the stage and were adapted to screen. And we decided to go bigger than ever, and we wanted to get some special guests on, even more special than we've ever done before. That's right. We got Jared Leto himself. Woo! We've sent him maybe two emails. And he sent us back a horrifically gored boar's head. <laughs> and we took that as a yes, so it's going to be yeah. great. <laughs> um, but we have about um, eight or nine episodes coming at you about movie musicals adapted from Broadway stage plays. We're really excited. Um, we got some great guests. We don't uh, want to spoil it just yet, but be on the lookout. Our first one is talking all about Fiddler on the Roof. But first, Josh and I are going to do a little palate cleanser episode on a little fantasy movie called Dungeons and Dragons coming out June 2nd. So be on the lookout for that. But um, Alfred Molina, DePaul, lots of great men have taken up the mantle. <laughs> and I mean, you're next in that long line, Josh, so I don't know why you're laughing. Yeah, I guess so. You know, I personally am really excited for this, Josh, because... You know, we started this podcast because of your love for film. You know, you're a film student, but I mean, I've known you for a long time now, and I know that your passion for the stage and for theater is almost as high as your passion for film. So uh, I think this is going to be a really great conversation. Like you said, we have some really great guests coming on. So super stoked. For sure. Uh, musical theater has always been my second passion uh, next to film and analyzing these movie musicals uh, has been really great fun. But in our social political climate with the pandemic and everything, we thought that the world needs Broadway more than ever. And we wanted to get at the heart of that and how film and theater can work side by side with one another and cr still create great art. Yeah, why do they have to be separate? Exactly, yeah. Why has it gotta be one or the other? Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense and we are here to prove that wrong. Yes, I am sick of theater people burning down movie theaters and I am sick of movie people burning down Broadway theaters. I don't think cinephiles have access to that much gasoline, but you know, it's, it is what it is. Yes, Josh, <laughs> owning gasoline is a phenomenon exclusive <laughs> to theater people. And we will release the official lineup uh, next week. So be on the lookout for that on our Twitter page uh, at Frankly Podcast and our Facebook page, uh, just Frankly I Love Movies. And if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, joshreljosh21, you can get more updates on what's going on in my life. Also, Frankly, I Love Movies is part of the Orion Valley Productions podcast network. You can also check out my Dungeons & Dragons podcast, Ravnik Avengers. We are going into season two very, very soon. Um, the last episode of our prelude series with some prequel adventures is going up on Thursday. So you can check that out. And then we'll have a quick little like 20 minute season one recap episode. If you haven't listened to the first season and season two starting off strong, I'm super stoked. We've got Casey Clark on there playing a character who was on the Blade Runner episode. Um, and yeah, give it a give it a listen and hey while you already have itunes up uh give frankly i love movies a five-star rating and a review really helps us out also please give us any feedback that you may have we really appreciate it we are trying to grow and adapt as much as we possibly can and all of your feedback is nothing but helpful the only thing we cannot do is fire josh wall this is true they've tried before but i always end up coming back so get excited and until then i'm josh wall and frankly I love movies. <laughs>